If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. Anchor is free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. After interviewing 15 families whose loved ones vanished and hearing the majority tell me the police don't help much or the police aren't taking their case seriously, the police don't care because the person who disappeared was a drug addict, had a prior criminal history, or suffered with mental illness, I decided to do a podcast solely on what happens when families file a missing persons report and the various laws that are in our country and resources available to families. There are no federal laws requiring reporting and investigating adults who go missing, especially if they are over the age of 21. In 1995, the U.S. Supreme Court established the right to go missing based off McIntyre v. Ohio Elections Commission, which said, quote, the First Amendment right of freedom of the press by supporting the right of an individual to remain anonymous when writing, end quote. Therefore, if people want to remain anonymous when they go missing, legally, they can. I had the honor of speaking to two law enforcement agents about how missing persons cases work, the various missing people alerts, and the challenges they face when investigating a missing person. I am not sharing one of the agent's identity or where he works, not only out of privacy and respect to him, but also for his safety. These are unprecedented times we are living in with regards to law enforcement, and they deserve personal privacy and safe environments. They were very candid with me with regards to what happens when a person files a missing persons report. I asked if they could explain what happens when someone goes to law enforcement to file a report and if they could speak to waiting times for filing reports. As a side note, each state has their own policies on waiting times to file reports. So in my experience, uh, I can't speak for the other 48 states I've worked in, uh, but between the two states I have, uh, that being California and Texas, uh, there is no time limit. Um, there is, I'm not sure if there's a state law. I know it's departmental policy in Texas, but there is a state law in California that says if somebody calls any law enforcement agency and wishes to file a missing persons report, that report will be taken and that person will be entered into the system as missing, no questions asked. Um, for California, there's no time limit, uh, per se. So you, like I could call on my brother if I don't hear from him in 10 hours, 
Um, and I can say it's unlike him to ever call me or anything like that. Uh, and they will, by law, have to put him into the system as missing. You don't, you don't have to wait like to not hear from somebody for a specific amount of time, um, but um, there is a time uh, maximum for how long it takes for the agency to, you know, one, dispatch the call, and two, enter the person into the system. As we continued our discussion, he said that he receives many missing persons reports each week. Some reports come in regarding people missing after years of not hearing from a loved one, while others are filing reports of very recent missing people. He discussed the fact that cell phones are a wonderful way to track people, but cell phone companies are not so quick to give up the location of a person or their cell phone data without jumping through some serious hoops. Law enforcement has to have exigent circumstances to request these records. I have handled a couple cases that turn into uh, very big search parties because somebody gets lost in the woods or they, or they, uh, they send out a GPS signal, like an SOS signal on their phone or on their GPS device while they're hiking. And now we have to coordinate this whole team to go find them. Um, I can I can guarantee that if there are, uh, at least in my personal experience, I can guarantee that if there are exigent circumstances that lead to uh, to um, an officer to think that this person uh, that's missing is in serious danger and we need to do something about it right now, uh, they will do everything they can to get as much resource as they can on that. Um, missing persons. Now you have to understand a lot of people call in missing persons all the time. Um, in my other agency, I probably took, uh, a couple a week of telephonic reports regarding missing people. And sometimes they're not always people freaking out. They're just going, Hey, uh, I haven't heard from my, uh, my long lost brother in quite a while. Um, can you put them like in the missing person system so I can get notified if somebody ever contacts him? And that's exactly what happens. If you're a missing adult and we don't have any exigent circumstances to, to say that you're in serious danger, because as from a liability standpoint, anybody can call in and want to report someone as missing. Um, and we can, we have to take that report because it, it, you can, you can see the potential for being a huge liability if we just blow them off. Oh yeah, they, they come in, they come in a lot and people get, people get confused. They're like, well, can't you do something about it? And I go, we really can't. I mean, if they don't have a cell phone, well, the, the other thing is cell phones. Cell phones are great. They're great tracking devices. But the thing is only if we get permission to track them, uh, we have to request permission from the cell phone carrier. And usually without exigent circum circumstances, that cell phone carrier is going to be like, now nah, you're going to need a warrant for that. We're not going to give you information. And more often than not, that's the answer we get. Now, if we provide some stuff like, uh, hey, he has his cell phone on him, uh, that's when he sent the SOS text message when he got lost in the woods, uh, can we ping that phone and see if we can narrow down his location up in the mountains? Usually that kind of stuff, they're like, yeah, here's, here's his latest information or here's the last time and the last location that pinged that. But if someone just calls in and says, Hey, I haven't I haven't heard from my my sister-in-law in like two years. Can you can you report them missing? A cell phone carrier is never gonna 
never going to divulge that information um, because maybe they don't want to be in contact with the person who's looking for them. Um, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privacy thing. I mean, I mean, people, uh, I mean, you have the right to disappear. If, if you don't want to talk to people, you don't have to. You don't need a cell phone. You don't need to communicate with anybody. Every department has a policy and procedure regarding responding to and, and handling missing persons cases. Um, as far as nationwide, uh, departments talk, policies get around, other departments base their, their policies on other departments' policies, so on and so forth. So you're not going to find, you might find a straggler agency that has a policy that's way different than everybody else's. Uh, but for the most part, they're going to be generally around, around the same, especially with the liability that comes with, try, with handling a missing person's case. I also spoke to Chris, a law enforcement agent who agreed to this interview. Again, I am not divulging where he works for his own safety and respect to his privacy. He too also spoke with me regarding what happens when someone files a missing persons report and myths surrounding waiting times for filing reports. So Oregon law says um, the minimum or the maximum, excuse me, that you have to wait is 12 hours. That's the maximum. However, each agency you go to is going to have a different maximum or minimum time. The agency that I work for, for example, uh, we have no minimum time. So you could be missing for five minutes and you can still report someone as missing because if you have you know, let's say I'm missing juvenile. We're not going to wait 24 hours to start looking for them. That's that's outrageous. Especially, I mean, each case is going to be dynamic. Of course, you know, you have the um, maybe the the family member that often goes missing or is a drug addict and doesn't want to be found, and then of course you have the let's say 18, 19 year old female who's never done this before. Um, obviously, we adjust our resources accordingly, depending on the circumstance. Hikers will go missing, and then our search and rescue team actually gets activated. Um, and here in Oregon, that's actually required by state law that every uh, county have a search and rescue team that's ran by the sheriff's office. So even if, um, let's say, a city jurisdiction here has a missing person that um, fits the criteria for search and rescue, we still get activated. Um, I'm not a part of search and rescue. Uh, majority of our search and rescue folks are actually volunteers, which is awesome. Um, but that's ran by uh, a sergeant and then a couple other senior deputies. Um, but that does happen quite often, and that activates a whole slew of resources that we have at our disposal. Chris spoke about a concept I shared that some families have regarding their missing loved one, and that is the individual has a criminal history, mental illness, or substance abuse, and police are not so willing to help based on those factors. This is an inaccurate assumption. Regardless of a person's lifestyle, mental health, or criminal background, law enforcement does not judge each case. They are filed accordingly. Chris also spoke about NCIC. NCIC was formed in 1967 under J. Edgar Hoover. 
The FBI manages the National Crime Information Center and is interconnected with federal, state, tribal, and local agencies in all 50 states. That being said, if your loved one goes missing, you can rest assured their information is accessible in all 50 states by law enforcement. So first and foremost, when we get a missing person, the first thing we do is enter them into a national database regardless of their criminal history. Um, it could be someone with a warrant even, um, regardless of criminal history, we're going to enter them into a national database. It's called NCIC, it's a National Crime Information Center, and that's ran by the FBI. And I believe that was started sometime in the 60s, I want to say. And that's pretty much a national database um, of different things, you know, stolen cars, um, missing persons, everything. So regardless of person's criminal history, you know, um, we're going to enter them as a missing person. Um, as far as resources is concerned, it all depends on, you know, um, like I said, each situation is going to be dynamic. It's going to depend on the circumstances. We had, um, you know, one recently actually where a mom had called in and her son, who was in his 20s, was missing. Even though he did have an active warrant for his arrest and he was a uh, drug user, um, there were circumstances surrounding that that he had been uh, murdered. Um, just evidence that we had that prompted a massive response by the sheriff's office that worked for. Um, tons of man hours were used searching for him. Ended up finding him um, in the northern part of the state. Um, he was fine. Um, but like I said, it, it all depends um, the circumstances surrounding that. Obviously, if it's someone that routinely goes missing or someone that does not want to be found, because we've had that before, where we're able to contact someone and they're like, I do not want to talk to my family. Do not enter me as missing. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's their right. Um, but to say that, you know, cops don't care is absolutely not true. I can't speak for any other jurisdiction other than my own, but even the other jurisdictions I've worked with, um, you know, it, it, to say that is outrageous, to be honest with you. Um, and like I said, it's really going to depend on the circumstances because each missing person is going to be dynamic. Each state is is governed and handled slightly differently than the next. Um, I there are there are national guidelines as far as like reporting. So there's a national. Uh, it's called NCIC, which is the National uh, Crime Information Center, um, and that has that branches off to 50 different programs, and each state has a part of it, and they all talk. So I can, if I were to come in contact with somebody and I run their name like I'm checking for warrants or something like that, if they're reported missing out of, like, for instance, Rhode Island, I will know. Um, so nationally, the states talk to each other when it comes to missing persons. How a department handles a missing persons case, uh, that's up to the department based on the state's guidelines. Since we have the NCIC system um, and the states do talk to each other, it doesn't really create a conflict with how somebody handles a case. I wanted to speak to Chris about when and what happens if a case goes cold. He explained in detail about cold cases and the fact that some families are not so willing to come forth with all information regarding their missing loved one. Now, that could be because they are a drug addict or they have mental illness, or the fact that they might have a warrant. 
Withholding that information only impedes an agent's ability to find your loved one. So if you find yourself in the unfortunate event of filing a missing persons report, please be 100% honest and transparent. Law enforcement is there to help your family. Technically in law enforcement, cold case occurs when you have zero leads for an extended period of time. Um, Let's just use a homicide, for example. If you've exhausted all of your leads and it's been six months a year, I guess, and no one is investigating it, actively investigating it, then it becomes a cold case. It's very similar to a missing person. And I usually try to let, let's say, um, you know, a mom wants to report her 25-year-old son is missing. You know, obviously we go through the whole thing, entering him as missing. You know, we see if we can ping his phone, all that stuff. Um, if we've exhausted all leads possible and there's nothing else that we can do, that, that technically goes into the cold case file. Now, if let's say a week later, a month later, a year later, mom calls in and she's like, hey, I heard my son was with so-and-so, then we can investigate that further. But if we have nothing to investigate, um, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do. Just like you, you asked before, is all these people or families that are asking or saying, you know, the police aren't doing anything. That's why I, I ask people in a respectful manner. I say, what would you like us to do? What, what more do you think that we can do? Is there something you're not telling us? You know, so that's, that's definitely something that people should know is there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people don't realize. I asked both law enforcement agents if they could talk about if and when the FBI gets involved in a missing persons case. The FBI will get involved if the state asks for their assistance or if there is reason to believe a crime has been committed across state lines or if a kidnapping has occurred across state lines. The FBI will also make available the facilities of the FBI Identification Division and the FBI Laboratory, and that's according to the Department of Justice Archives. So as far as like a regular missing persons cases, uh, I have not heard of them getting involved. Um, they will get involved if it is a kidnapping that crosses state lines, because then, then it becomes a national case. Um, so I love working with the FBI and I, I worked a specialty assignment where I got to work with the FBI um, on a regular basis um, before COVID. Um, and a lot of people think it's like TV where the FBI comes in and there's this big fight between cops and FBI agents. And it's like, this is my jurisdiction. No, it's mine. It cannot be further from the truth. Um, FBI agents are there to help and they will really only come in if you ask them to. I cannot think of a time where um, the FBI has come and said, we're taking over. This is a federal case. Um, they're very helpful, especially in the jurisdiction where I work. Um, there's several agents assigned to that jurisdiction as a whole. And if we say, hey, this is too big for us, um, they will definitely come and help. Absolutely. They have, a, as you can imagine, because they're a federal agency, they have a lot more resources than we do. 
know that I mean the FBI they're what they're gonna do is say you need to refer to your local jurisdiction. Now if that local jurisdiction, like let's say that lady where her daughter went missing is in a very small jurisdiction with limited resources, um, the FBI they might not get involved. They might say, Hey, call the state police, which which is common, or call your county sheriff's office, which is even more common. Um, because in the, the county that I work, we do have small jurisdiction. We have one jurisdiction that has one officer and one chief. And has you know two police officers pretty much. And we regularly help them out because we have the resources to. The state police also helps them out. For the FBI to get involved, it it has to be to, to pretty much sum it up, it has to be worth their while. It has to be something we really need their resources on. Let's say we have to go do an interview in several other states. Or, hey, we have reason to believe that a crime has been committed across state lines. That's when the FBI can get involved and, you know, even charge someone with federal crimes. So this next topic is a hotbed issue for many families who have missing loved ones, and I had to ask the question, why can't law enforcement just get a search warrant to go search a potential suspect's home, and why can't law enforcement search homes of the last known person that was with a missing person? Their answers may surprise you, maybe not. Law enforcement has to have probable cause to get a search warrant, and it has to be signed by a judge. However, if there are exigent circumstances, meaning something that requires immediate action, such as, say, a woman screaming for help, agents can enter the home without a warrant. This topic is frustrating to many law enforcement agents because despite their instincts, they need probable cause and they need a judge that's willing to sign the search warrant. So it is tough, uh, and generally my response is try to empathize because I understand that um, any any good officer understands that the family family general uh, generally is um, genuinely concerned about the well-being, um, but uh, we do have to explain uh, that people do have rights in this case and. We need a little bit more information. I'll use I'll use information instead of probable cause because that's that's a little that's that's what I use generally to help people understand is the word information. Um, we need a little bit more information that leads us to that would lead a reasonable person to believe that there is a solid chance that uh, suspect A Joe Schmo, Schmo or whatever is actually responsible for this. Um, and if we have that information, and it can't just be a statement, because, for example, if someone called in and said, hey, uh, my brother was, I think my brother was kidnapped because he's been hanging out with this dude who's, uh, who gives me a bad vibe. And, uh, and then we have to ask, okay, well, <laughs> we need a little bit more than that. What, 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 do you, what do you have to go along with that? And they're like, well, uh, I, this dude's just creepy and I haven't heard from my brother in a couple days. Um, I, I, what, do, what do I do? I'm like, well, um, if your brother's an adult, there's not a whole lot we can do. That doesn't really, that's not enough information to really do anything at that point. Um, 
Now, according to state law, we can enter them into the missing person system, uh, but that there's no extenuating circumstances. There's no exigency. Now, if he gave a little bit more information and brought up some sort of physical evidence about a kidnapping actually taking place, or we had video surveillance, um, or uh, text messages saying, help me, and, and any, any of that kind of stuff, we can certainly go ahead and request a search warrant from the judge. Now, just because we request it doesn't mean it's going to get uh, signed off on and blessed and say, yeah, you're good to go. Because um, law enforcement can't just write up a search warrant and then go execute it. It has to be approved by the court of law first. So we need probable cause, which is 51% of the law, to get a search warrant. That is what is required by law. It is very frustrating at times um, when we cannot get a search warrant for certain things, but we do have to play by the rules of law. Because if we were just to go in there without a search warrant and without exigency, like if we heard someone screaming in there, we would obviously go in. That's called exigency. If we didn't have the, one of those two things or we couldn't articulate why we went in there, everything we find is going to be thrown out in court in a suppression hearing. And that's not what we want. That would pretty much lead balloon our entire case. And that's not up to law enforcement officers. That's up to a judge. Um, I'm assuming in Washington, it's, it's similar to, to the state of Oregon where you have to go before a judge to apply for a search warrant. Going in someone's, um, going in someone's house is a lot harder just because, in any case, really, because the courts have determined, especially in the Ninth Circuit Court, which is the entire West Coast, um, we are governed by case law. So the courts have determined that someone's house is their ultimate domain, as it should be. So to get a search warrant on someone's house is extra hard, to put it in layman's terms. You have to have really good probable cause because a judge is not just going to allow you to search someone's house without really good probable cause. It's not like a cell phone or even a DUI. So, like I said, I can't speak to those officers, but if they didn't have probable cause, there's not much they can do, unfortunately. In 1996, the AMBER Alert System was implemented. AMBER stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response and was created as a legacy to nine-year-old Amber Hagerman, who was kidnapped while riding her bicycle in Arlington, Texas, and then brutally murdered. There are certain criteria the missing juvenile has to meet, and some of those are law enforcement, has to confirm that an abduction has taken place. The child is at risk for serious injury or death, or there is sufficient descriptive information of the child in the captor's vehicle to issue an alert. I asked both agents if they could discuss Amber Alerts and the many other missing persons alerts. So Amber Alerts and Silver Alerts are actually on a national level. So as far as uh, standardization, those are a couple things that uh, the, the federal government has said, hey, these are the guidelines. It's up to the state, uh, to the law enforcement agency of the state, so like state troopers, highway patrol, uh, to handle these if they meet the criteria. So, uh, and each state can have other alerts. So like, for instance, uh, Texas has, every state has amber and silver alerts. Texas has um, a clear alert, uh, which is a missing dependent adult. 
Um, it has a camo alert, which is also a uh, like a, a missing member of the military, uh, for example. But um, if you believe as an officer or deputy that somebody meets the criteria for one of these alerts, uh, you have to run it up the chain of command at your department, and the chain of command will in turn contact the state law enforcement agency. So here it would be uh, Texas Department of Public Safety, the troopers. Um, and if it meets all the criteria, then they're the ones that broadcast that alert out. Amber alerts are for minors, yes, but that is one of the, I don't remember how many checkpoints it is, but it is a checklist. And if you do not hit all of the, all of the criteria in the checklist, they will not broadcast the Amber alert. For instance, the requirement of an Amber alert is that there is a vehicle involved. Um, so if you don't have a license plate on a car, the Amber alert will not be issued. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going so far as to say nothing's going to be done. Um, but as far as an Amber alert, that kind of stuff, the, the cat, the uh, requirements are very specific. So you have to hit them. And the state police agency is responsible for making sure one, it meets the criteria for that specific alert. And two, that alert gets disseminated throughout the state. Well, Amber alert is very specific. It is not up to a local jurisdiction to issue an Amber alert. That's usually going to be up to a state jurisdiction. Um, here in Oregon, I believe that's the Oregon State Police or even the Oregon Department of Justice, but there is um, requirements for an Amber Alert. Just because a, a juvenile is missing doesn't mean we can issue an Amber Alert. What has to happen is, first of all, it has to be a juvenile. Um, you have to have a good description of them. Um, you have to, there has to be reason to believe that the juvenile is in serious risk of uh, death. Pretty much, they're they're in danger, imminent danger, and also you have to have the um, the kidnappers' information. If you have their information, um, even just their name and a picture, like their DMV photo, that's good enough. Um, obviously, the car. We've all seen the Amber Alerts on the side of the highway of, you know, the suspect's car and everything like that. But if you don't have all all of those things, we cannot issue an Amber Alert. It's we just can't do it. You have to have those things. Let's say that uh, she was walking with a friend and the friend saw, you know, let's say a male throw her into a car and the friend was able to get the license plate and a description of the male. And we were able to determine that the description of the male matched the registered owner of that car. Um, that would be something we would do an Amber Alert on. We have someone who was forcibly kidnapped, a juvenile who is probably in imminent danger of being hurt and or killed. And that she's under the age of 17. We have a description of her kidnapper. That's something we would definitely do an Amber Alert on. It does not have to be a vehicle. You can just have a description of the um, the person. You have to have the, the kidnapper's information, pretty much. That way we can send out a name and picture of the person. One of the law enforcement agents I interviewed spoke about volunteer groups that are recruited to help search for missing people. Not all law enforcement agencies recruit volunteer search and rescue groups, but some will, depending on the size of the agency. At my old agency, it was since I worked for uh, a sheriff's office, um, we had a search and rescue team, as it was, made up of uh, uh, sworn deputies, and then it had a... Um, a mountain unit, so deputies that were on horses. Um, it also had what was called the Jeep unit, which was a bunch of volunteers, a handful of citizens that had Jeeps 
that were happy to drive search and rescue team members up and down the, uh, the off-road trails uh, to help search for somebody. And there was also just the regular volunteer component of the search and rescue team. That was probably about two dozen just citizens that want to help out. And they were trained. They participated in all the trainings that the regular search and rescue team did. The only difference was they weren't carrying firearms like deputies. Like, for example, the town I work for now is a lot smaller. It's about 70,000 people. Um, we don't have... We, we don't have the need, for one, because our jurisdiction is a lot smaller than a uh, 7,000 square mile county, for instance. Um, and if we did need help with search and rescue operations, uh, we would call, we would ask for mutual aid from a bigger agency, whether that be uh, the home county sheriff's office or uh, another police department nearby, whoever actually has the resources to help out. Another question I had was whether or not law enforcement can go into companies to look at CCTV footage if they have a lead that a missing person may have been seen there last. He said that some companies will allow them to view footage while others want a search warrant. Now, I usually don't interject my opinions in my podcasts, but I couldn't help but to think about the time that is lost waiting for a search warrant so law enforcement can view footage. I mean, that's precious time that a family will never get back, and in my opinion, makes no sense. So, uh, the way you worded it, we absolutely can just go in and ask, but that's the key word, we can ask. We can ask anything. I can ask to search your house right now if I wanted to, but the beauty of America is you have the option to go, no, <laughs> and... Um, and sometimes that's the case. Sometimes uh, store owners will be like, no, not without a warrant. You can't see our footage of store policy. But some, sometimes they'll be like, yeah, you can see it right away. I, I wish I could answer that, um, but it happens not just for missing cases, but stuff more often than not. Um, we, have to, we get stores that would like us to get warrants first. But, but there are good people, and, and, and just because they say get a warrant first doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It might mean that, uh, they want to keep their jobs because their boss says that's the store policy. And, and we respect that. And if we come back with a warrant, then that's, that's, that's how it is. And that also means we have enough information uh, to say that something serious is going on. So the judge signed off on it so we can get a hold of this evidence. I also asked both law enforcement agents if they could speak to an unfair concept that law enforcement just don't care about their missing loved ones. Obviously, there are law enforcement agents that don't care, just like your waiter, your nurse, some doctors, or the gas station attendant doesn't care, but the majority do care. That's why they chose the career field. A career field that pays on average $55,000 a year and sometimes as low as $35,000 a year. Not much if you consider the fact that they are risking their lives every single day. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll agree with you. It, it is an unfair concept for the most part. I, I can certainly say that um, there, I'm, I'm sure there are people officers deputies that don't care i mean that's just that's just the nature of this there's uh 
But, I mean, the guy that works at 7-Eleven is not going to care either. It doesn't matter where you go. Somebody's not going to care. Uh, but with that being said, I, a, a solid majority of officers or deputies do actually care. Um, it's just tough explaining that without enough information, it's really hard for us to do something. We, we, cannot, we will not violate rights. Any, any officer worth their, uh, worth their time will not willingly violate somebody's rights just because someone said something uh, about a person possibly being missing. We need evidence to back that up. And it's tough. And I've had a lot of conversations with people that are like, why can't you do anything? And I have to break it down. I go, because there just isn't enough there. And I know it's concerning, but if you haven't heard from the person in two years, one, why are you calling now? And two, if you don't have any other information to help us, I can't help you. I'm not saying I don't want to, but I don't have enough information to help you. Chris also spoke about the struggles law enforcement agents face. While many law enforcement agencies are facing budget cuts, lack of community support, lack of support from their authorities, he is fortunate that he is not experiencing this. He did speak about struggles he faces with families of the missing and how much information should be shared with the families, the need for quality law enforcement applicants, and short staffing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I am very fortunate to work for an agency that over the past mm, three years, I would say, we've almost doubled in patrol deputies. We work for a very conservative um, county. Our county commissioners are very pro-law enforcement. The citizens we work for are very pro-law enforcement. So I can't speak to let's say the Portland police bureau that had, I think it was like $14 million cut from their budget and they had to cut positions. I can't speak to that. I've been very fortunate to work for an agency and work in a County that's been very pro law enforcement. At the end of the day, you do have to prioritize your caseload. Um, you know, obviously it's going to be person's crimes is going to be the number one thing we investigate, you know, your assaults, your assaults with a deadly weapon, your gun violence, those are going to be the biggest things that we, we investigate. Um, and then it goes, you know, obviously missing persons with mitigating circumstance, like the example you gave, that'd be something that we would investigate very thoroughly. Um, and it is hard sometimes because if you're in the middle of, of investigating something like that and a murder comes in or a homicide or, or something else comes in that takes priority, that unfortunately does have to go in the back burner. So I had a, a missing person very early on in my career where, um, you know, the family, the mom and dad were, were just so sure that something happened to him. He had never done this before, never used drugs. Um, their son, that is. And, um, you know, after it was tons of hours I spent, I was able to find, um, at a truck stop here in the County, um, where he was last seen and he was going northbound on a, a main highway here in the state of Oregon. And I forgot how this was several years ago, but we were able to track him down to uh, Portland. And it came to the point where I was talking to him on the phone and I was like, he was telling me, I want nothing to do with my parents. I'm fine. And I was like, can you just stay where you're at? Because, you know, I just, can you just stay where you're at for a minute? On the other line, I'm getting the Portland Police Bureau to go and check on him to make sure that's actually my missing person, that it's not some, someone else. 
that's how convinced I was that something had happened to this guy. But sure enough, they went, they called me back and they're like, he is using drugs. He is, doesn't want, this is really him. He doesn't want any contact from his family, you know, all that stuff. So it's very heartbreaking to call um, the parents of that, something like that and say, um, cause they're from Southern Oregon, you know, they live four and a half, five hours away from Portland and went to tell them that, uh, you know, obviously it's something you want to tell them in person, but when you can't, it's heartbreaking because when they're elderly and, you know, to tell them, you know, sorry to tell you, but your son is using drugs. He doesn't want anything to do with you. He's not missing. Um, it is heartbreaking. Absolutely. The first and foremost thing is going to be family. Um, you're usually not going to get a hundred percent of the details. Um, you know, regarding everyone wants to think that their family member is an angel. And if I'm just trying to find out where they buy their drugs from, I do not care. I'm not here to get them in trouble. I'm here to make sure that they're safe. So if you don't want to tell me where they buy their drugs from or who they hang out with, that's just impeding my investigation. Um, so that's, that's always going to be an issue. Um, and then of course people that don't want to be found, that's, that's another big thing. I've ran into that so many times where people just do not want to be found. They do not want any contact from their family. They want to start a new life. And that happens more often than people think, unfortunately. It, it's definitely difficult, um, you know, especially if you have nothing to report. And if the opposite happens where you have a lot to report, um, you have to look at, is this going to jeopardize my case of finding this missing person? Um, you know, if I have a clue about where this person is, do I tell the family? I'm very hesitant on that because the family, and I don't blame them. They have a missing loved one. The family will absolutely get involved 100% of the time. They will post on social media. They will talk to people. They will talk to the news. Um, they will jeopardize the case. Absolutely. And it's not their fault. Like I said, it, I can't imagine if one of my children were missing, you know, the, the lengths I would go to. Um, so I, I completely get it. We do fill them in, you know, as much as we can without jeopardizing it. Like I said, if we're able to get a location on where someone is and they end up not being there and we told the family we're going to go get them, that just makes us look incompetent at that point. Um, and that's never good. Absolutely. Um, so you do have to find the right balance. Of course, you do get into those situations where if what you're going to say is going to jeopardize operational security. Do we believe that a family member is involved? Is the family not telling us all the details? So if we tell them something, they're going to realize, oh, no, the cops now know that we're involved. The cops now know where she is. Um, that's obviously something we don't want to happen. Um, so it is a fine balance, not just on missing persons, but really any kind of case that we work out, what do we tell the family um, of the victim? You know, um, obviously... If it comes to the point where someone is deceased, obviously you want to tell them right away. That is something you make an alert to. Um, you, you tell them pretty much in person as soon as possible. Because in today's society with social media, um, you know you know that, that news spreads so quickly. Um, but yeah, it, it really comes down to, like I said, just the right balance of telling them. Um, because at the end of the day, you, know, you, you don't know, like I said, if the family's going to post on social media or whatever. And I pose the question that when people say that, regardless of what kind of case I'm working, when they say we want you to do more, I always ask them, what would you like me to do? You know, what, what, what do you think I'm not doing? 
everything. I mean, um, everything we do is mandated by obviously uh, state law and then uh, federal law, um, and then obviously case law, which is decided in Oregon and Washington State by the Ninth Circuit Court. So if they've determined you cannot do something, then and we cannot do it. Um, you know, it's pretty much how it goes. Unfortunately, we have to play by the rules. Criminals don't. Um, but I mean, that's that's usually how it goes. I'm not a detective, but our detectives are absolutely working um, overtime. They have been for the last several years. Just being um, short-staffed. Another, when we have vacant positions open right now, and another downfall, I guess you would say, is um, lack of quality applicants. You know, it's not like it was. 10 years ago, even five years ago, where we got tons of applicants. Um, it, it, we've seen a major drop in the quality of applicants we get, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest things. I think the two biggest things, is my personal opinion, is going to be everything that's going on in the media right now and the betray, you know, how it's betrayed cops pretty much and how, you know, cops are the devil or whatever you want to say. Um, that's going to be the biggest thing is why would anyone, unless they had a real passion for helping someone or helping people in general or serving their community, why would they want to do this job? You know, and the other side of it is every single agency is pretty much hiring. I do not know a single agency in a hundred miles of me that is not hiring. So you have, you know, like it was after, I believe after nine 11, you had a ton of agencies hiring and it's, we're kind of hitting that, that pendulum is swinging back into that where, you know, you have a ton of agencies hiring and, you know, new officers, new law enforcement officers are really having their chance to go wherever they really want to go. When I applied several years ago, it was not like that. Um, you, you really, it's called a shotgun effect where you apply to like 12 different agencies and you hope one picks you up. <laughs> now you're applying to 12 different agencies and all 12 want to hire you if you're a quality applicant. So um, it, it's definitely hard competing with the bigger agencies like the Oregon state police um, who has a, a pretty nice budget. They pay more than us, but um, you know, they only patrol highways. So, Oftentimes, when I interview families of missing loved ones, I am told that they have approached the person who was last seen with a missing person, or they will decide to investigate on their own. I asked Chris if he could speak about families of missing loved ones who decide to investigate on their own, approaching suspects and questioning them. Not only is it dangerous, but doing so may jeopardize their case. Another point that is important to understand is that most people do not know how to tell if someone is lying. They do not know how to read body language and micro expressions. For someone like Chris, he is educated and trained to pick up on these cues. Absolutely not. And like I said, I, I, can, I can feel where they're coming from. Absolutely. But that is something that's absolutely not going to be safe for a variety of reasons. One is you can get yourself hurt. If you knock on the wrong door, um, you, you don't know what, who's going to answer the door. You don't know if you're going to be kidnapped or killed. Um, the people that take other people are very bad. 
and that's pretty much putting it in layman's terms. If you are willing to kidnap another human being, what other lengths are you willing to go to? Murder is pro- probably not very far where you're going to go to. You know, if you're willing to kidnap someone, whether it be a child or an adult. So for these family members to contact these people or potential suspects, even if they're not suspects, I cannot imagine if someone knocked on my door today and said, you kidnapped my child. I would be very upset and it would not end well, probably. Um, so it's definitely not safe. The second thing is you are absolutely jeopardizing law enforcement's case, to say the least. Because what happens if that really is the suspect that you're contacting and all of a sudden they kill your family member or they flee, they flee the state or flee the country? You've absolutely jeopardized that case. I can absolutely understand family getting involved and holding vigils or whatever. Um, absolutely. But to go and contact people that are involved in the case, um, you know, that's, that's just never going to end right now. At the end of the day, they are not trained investigators. They don't know what questions to ask. They don't know really when someone's lying. Um, they don't know the clues that to pick up on when someone's lying or when they're talking to someone. Um, so it's, it's really never a good thing. I know it's not the answer people want to hear, but you know, it's, you really have to trust law enforcement officers to do that. People are just desperate to get the truth and they think they know more. And, um, you know, one thing I will say about kidnappers is especially, um, you know, pedophiles. Um, I've worked around, you know, a a couple in the years I've been with uh, my agency and they are master manipulators because that's, that's, that's how they get children is they groom them and they know how to manipulate them. And they are not bad at all at manipulating adults at all. So if you think you're going to get a professional child molester to admit to you that they kidnapped your child, you are probably dead wrong and it will not end well for you. I asked both law enforcement agents if they had a message they wanted to share with the community when it comes to missing persons. Both agents said that they love their job, but as one agent said, oftentimes his hands are tied due to state law, case law, or federal laws. Another issue is the waiting times to get results back from crime labs. Most times it can take up to a year to receive results. Chris said the biggest thing he wants the community to understand is that a missing person is entered into a national and sometimes an international database, which alerts law enforcement throughout the United States of a missing person. Another idea he wanted to share is that if a family ever has questions, reach out and talk to the officer or agency that took the report. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're, they're tied. And, and I want to help people. I like helping people. That's why I do this job. Uh, and so if I can find a solution for them, then I, I'd love to. Um, so the toughest, the toughest part about this job is telling people that there is nothing I can do. And I have to do that uh, not just for missing persons cases, but for a lot of stuff multiple times a day. Uh, because we're not the end all be all. Uh, we're simply not. It doesn't, it's not like CSI or NCIS that you see on TV. Uh, you, can't, you can't pull up some 
crummy video footage and click enhance three times and get a perfect picture and an ID on a sus suspect, uh, chances are um, you're, we will not lift uh, viable fingerprints off of a window if somebody broke into your house. Um, and chances are if we do lift fingerprints off, they usually take nine months to a year to get the results back. So I, I tell every person, every complainant that wants to list someone as missing how the process works with entering into the National Crime Information Center, also known as NCIC. I, I feel like that's very ignored when I tell people that. They think that they make a report and that's the end of it. They do not realize that their loved one is entered into a national database and sometimes an international database as a missing person. If I enter your loved one, let's say your daughter, as a missing person in the state of Oregon, and she goes to New York City next week, and the police contact her, when they run her name, they will, she will come up as missing, and then they will contact my agency, they'll contact you, they will do their diligence to send her back. <laughs> you know, um, it's not something that's ignored. Um, that's, that's the biggest thing is these people are listed as missing pretty much forever until they're found. Um, the, the second thing is it really depends on the case. Like I said before, um, each case is dynamic. If it's a child, obviously our resources are, you know, we're going to use all available resources. And if it's someone versus someone that routinely goes missing, like let's say it is a I, I hate to use it, but a drug addict that goes missing every other week, mm -hmm. they're still going to get listed as missing. That's, that's not going to change, but we're going to probably use a lot less resources. We're going to go to where they regularly hang out, maybe where they buy their drugs, um, friends' houses. We're still going to do our due diligence to find them, but it's a lot different versus, like I said, versus a juvenile. Um, each case is going to be different. If the biggest thing I want to tell people if they have questions about it, talk to the agency or the officer that took the report. They will be more than happy to explain the process to you or their policy or procedure. Thank you for listening to In Search Of Missing in America. This podcast is a very unusual one for me in that I typically only interview missing persons family members. But as an advocate for families of missing people, I felt in my heart the importance to share what's on the other side, what law enforcement agents go through in trying to find a missing person. I'd like to take the time to personally extend my thanks to both agents who took the time to interview with me. I'd also like to say thank you to each and every law enforcement agent out there trying their best to keep us safe. Thank you for the struggles you endure, for your sleepless nights, for your missed dinners with family, for the demons you may face because of the work you do. Thank you for risking your life for mine. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay safe.